economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Christopher Ogumodede. Chris is a foreign policy advisor and associate editor of World Politics Review, who is based in Lagos, Nigeria. He specializes in diplomacy, development and international security, with a particular focus on West Africa and its history, political institutions and foreign relations. His further areas of interest include governance, elections, military dictatorships, comparative authoritarianism, trade and regional integration, migration, diasporism, and social movements. In addition to being an expert on international affairs and foreign policy, as well as a critical voice on African politics and U.S. and particularly European perceptions of and policies towards Africa on social and traditional media, Chris is a connoisseur of Afrobeat, which is today's topic of conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks very much. I'm glad to do it. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Oh, that's got to be uh, Milan, AC Milan. Uh, the late 80s, the early 90s, the Arigusaki teams with Casotti, uh, Maldini, Baresi, and, you know, Ludhulit, Raikard, like those are my guys. That's who I grew up on. Um, <laughs> right. So I would say that's the first team I rooted for as a kid. And what is your favorite political song? I got to say Fight the Power by Public Enemy. You know, it's kind of like a cliche, but it's uh, rightly so, I'd say, because it just captures the essence, essentially, of the time it was recorded in the late 80s. And when you look at the sort of milieu of the time, you know, with Reaganomics and the crack epidemic in inner city United States, police brutality, the AIDS crisis and all of what was happening at the time, I just think. And then when you look at the samples of, you know, James Brown and Bobby Bird and the message, you know, it was used in Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, you know, in the video, like it's put it all together. It's just the perfect protest song, the perfect anti-authority anthem, essentially. And that's why I picked that as my uh, favorite protest song. An absolute classic. And finally, what's your favorite political book? Mm, that's, a, that's a good one. I'd have to say my favorite political book would be Mio Colonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. It's essentially a book about the independence, quote unquote, of African countries, theoretically, but, you know, it's a sort of disaggregation of the theoretical versus the practical. Yes, they got independent politically in the sense of elected indigenous leaders. But when you look at the structures of their economy and the political influence from the colonial powers, they're not really, you know, independent and they're not really autonomous. And when you look at the structure of the world then and now, you know, a lot of it has just held up perfectly. So before we start talking about Afrobeat, a quick question on current events. Mm -hmm. How is the Russian second invasion of Ukraine being perceived on the African continent? Most African countries supported the UN resolution that condemned Russia, but are there division? Is the issue considered important? Is it considered dangerous, the start of a possible third war, as it is in some parts of Europe? 
to start with my answer, I'll always give the caveat of the fact that, you know, when you speak of Africa, as it were, like, you know, it's a continent of 54 countries and 1.3 billion people. So it's always sort of difficult to speak in a general sense. But I will say that for sure on the political side, when you look at a political leadership, as you mentioned, with the vote at the UN, where the majority actually voted in favor of the resolution, there were some noticeable um, abstentions, you know, from South Africa, Mali and other countries. So let me take it this way. Look at the economic, the political, and the security. Economically, you know, Africans are worried in the sense that what happens in, you know, Europe and its periphery affects the African continent. You know, the price of food, the price of commodities. There's also the energy sector, you know, oil prices are rising. And, you know, there are some countries that stand to gain from that. You know, you talk about the Angola, the Nigeria, the Libyas, but then there's also, um, you know, effects on the fact that when the price of oil goes up, it has a fallback in other commodities, which means they also go up. So that's like the economic. And then when you look at the political slash diplomatic, I will say African countries have been fairly clear about what their position is. Like they nominally oppose the incursion and they have said so, you know, the African Union said so, South Africa said so, Senegal has said so, Nigeria said so, that Russian forces should withdraw from Ukraine. But there's also a larger question of great power politics. And my most recent newsletter of World Politics Review called Africa Watch, I wrote about that, about the fact that while in theory and in practice, they oppose the incursion, African countries don't want to be pulled into a great power contest with the West as it were led by the United States and then Russia on the other side. So they strike that balance in their messaging while saying, yes, we don't agree with the war and the incursion and the attacks, but we also want to see de-escalation. We want to see a multilateral approach to a resolution. And we don't want to essentially be forced to do things that we don't want to do. So they've not joined in the sanctions, for example, as has the majority of the world, by the way. And they are refusing essentially to take, as it were, a harder line, like quite like the West would want them to. So that's like the diplomatic. Just before I move on from that, I'd also say that there's the fact that a lot of countries have investments with Russia, you know, like South Africa have deep, deep economic ties to Russia. Zimbabwe, you know, Guinea, Congo, Angola, you know, there are Russian companies involved in these countries. So they've got their interests that they're essentially trying to uh, protect, as it were, because sure, they can always pivot away from Russia, but that's disruptive, right? And these are fragile economies. So it's not as easy as just, oh, we're going to cancel a bunch of trade deals and da da da. That's going to have a deep effect on the local economy and domestic politics. So that's like the diplomatic. And of course, you've got the security where, again, a lot of African countries and their militaries depend on Russian hardware, a lot of Russian weaponry. So when you put all of this together, essentially African countries have taken a sort of non-alignment stance, as it were, where they are clear about the fact that they oppose the incursion, they oppose the warfare. And they've condemned the racism and discrimination that African students were facing in Ukraine and Poland and other African countries. So that's that. But the larger picture of not wanting to be pulled into a great power contest, that's the big picture they're looking at. And that, I think, is what guides their response to all of this. Thanks. That is very useful, given that we mostly, at least in the U.S. and Europe here, U.S. and European perspectives. Now, let's talk about Afrobeat. So what is it and when and where did it emerge? 
So Afrobeat at its core is a diasporic sound, which has its beginnings in a variety of musical sounds from primarily West Africa, you know, Nigeria, what is Nigeria, Benin Republic, Togo, Ghana. And this includes a lot of local Nigerian and West African sounds like Juju and High Life, which, you know, traces its beginnings to Ghana. But then also there are elements of Calypso and Foxtrot, American jazz, soul, funk, and some elements of gospel in terms of like the call and response. So, you know, it's essentially a African diasporic sound. It's got, of course, its genealogy in Nigeria and West Africa broadly. But when you expand the aperture of what it is, you know, the fact that uh, Fela Kuti spent time in London and the U.S. eventually and made a lot of records with a guy called Roy Ayers, an African-American musician. And Fela had a lot of influences from Black America when he went there in the late 60s. So all of that combined together is what creates Afrobeat. It's less a genre as it is a sensibility, as it were. And not to say that it's not a genre, because it did become a genre, but it's essentially a collection of Afro-diasporic sounds. You know, there's a lot of debate about whether Vela Nicola Pukuti actually found Afrobeat, quote-unquote, but it's accepted that he popularized, together with a guy called Tony Allen. That's, in a nutshell, what Afrobeat is. Right. And you've already mentioned Fela Kuti and whether or not he is the founder or the popularizer. Any account of Afrobeat will mention him. Now, Fela Kuti was not just a musician, but he was also a political activist, particularly in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about Fela Kuti's political ideas and ideology? This is actually one of my favorite questions to be asked and to discuss because there's not a lot of easy answers to it and a lot of it depends on who you talk to. My answer would be that Fela's politics were idiosyncratic. He was nominally a pan-Africanist or what you would call a third worldist, you know, in terms of like his anti-imperialism, at least on a surface level and the themes of his music, you know, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, you know, his mother, well, his family, to be honest, because he comes from a family of prominent anti-colonialists. His mother, Olufu Milayo, was a very prominent women's rights and anti-colonial activist. So that's like his politics. Like I said, third worldist, pan-African, socialist. But a lot of that was very surface level, to be honest, because when you scratch beyond that, A lot of it was very inconsistent, right? So he condemned the military in Nigeria, but, you know, defended a lot of military dictators on the continent. So, you know, you wonder, are you anti-authoritarianism or are you pro-authoritarianism? Like, what's the deal? And, you know, Fela's music and his conduct were, frankly, very sexist. You know, there's a lot of that about the fact that, you know, he objectified women. Despite, you know, as I said, his mother is arguably the most prominent feminist in Nigerian history. So a lot of Fela's politics were just idiosyncratic. In a nutshell, I describe it as iconoclastic and uh, sort of dispositionally anti-authority, basically. That is fundamentally what it is, because a lot of it was very incoherent. A lot of it was contradictory. You know, a lot of it, Fela, frankly, was not as deep as a lot of people think he was. You know, that's not to say that that was his job or anything, but his disposition was anti-authority first. When you actually got into the philosophy of what he was saying, there were a lot of mixed messages. 
So more concretely, what type of role did Felakuti play in Nigerian politics, perhaps broader African politics? Was he a man behind the scene? Was he someone who drove certain political developments? To a certain extent, he did. And that is due to the clarity with which, you know, he talked and sang and he made his music and the things that he discussed, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa and globally, you know, he had a lot of range. Like he talked on a record about the United Nations Security Council. He'll talk about the military juntas. He talked about other African leaders that he respected. Of course, he was an international figure. Like this is a guy who my parents saw in the 80s in London. And he performed in large arenas in New York and Milan and Munich and all over the world. Like this guy was an international figure. So that gave the fella a stature that a lot of artists did not have. So in that sense, the visibility that he had conferred a lot of authority when he talked about something. And, you know, especially with the young people at the time, you know, this was during the military. It was a very brutal, censorious society. There wasn't a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. And here was a guy who talked about things the way that you thought about it. So the fact that he spoke with such clarity and would frankly name names, like he would mention the military leaders and the members of the Juntas on records, like the popularity that he had just gave itself to a, a monoculture, as it were. As far as the substantive political consequential nature of that music, it was frankly limited because, for one thing, he tried to run for president but was, you know, barred by the military government at the time. Floated a political party actually, but of course they weren't allowed to stand. And of course, after that, you know, this was in 1979 when the country was coming out of military dictatorships, and of course after the transition to democracy. He continued to make music and to travel, but he didn't have that influence in politics because he wasn't allowed to, you know, even when, you know, it was a civilian government in name, the military were frankly still in control of power structure of the country. And they weren't going to allow like, a guy like Fela Nicola Fukuti being the political scene. Like, who the hell did he think he was? Like, that was the biggest obstacle to uh, being a political player. Now, in the broader sense of what politics means in terms of like participatory democracy, he was quite influential for reasons that I've stated. Like he was ever present. You know, the most important thing about Fela's legacy is the fact that you could play a record from like 76. Like one of like my favorite Fela record is a song called Army Arrangement. This is, I think, uh, 1985 or something. And when you play it today, it's almost literally like you're talking about everything that's happening today. Like all of the events, all of the accusations, sometimes a lot of the characters... You know, a lot of what he's talking about is literally still happening today. You know, it's it's bad that a lot of the characters he talks about are still alive, are still very much relevant politically. So that is what gave Fela the uh, credibility and the influence and the reach that he had. So he was a guy who, when you thought about the counterculture, as it were, especially in the 70s and the 80s, when he, you know, grew the phenomenal character. When you thought about an artist who spoke against the government of the day, that was him. And there weren't a lot of artists like that. So he wasn't doing this with some kind of cover. He was not. Like, he was frankly alone. And the fact that he was able to do that and take those risks is what made him you know, so celebrated, as it were. And of course, because you know Lagos and Nigeria writ large, it's such a large country, you know, it's so influential in West Africa. 
that really a lot of other West African countries, people in those countries who had similar problems of authoritarianism, gravitated toward Fela. Now, at least two of his sons are musicians too, Femi and Siun, if I say it correctly. In what way do they continue the tradition of their father, both musically and politically? You know, a lot. Of course, you know, the fact that they're his kids, they're his sons, and, you know, they have his last name. That always, always means that they're going to be attached to him. That's for sure. Of course, those two sons of his have tried to stake out their own autonomy and independence. And, and, you know, they want to be taken as their own people, as it were. And, you know, to a large extent, they've succeeded. But of course, you can never get away from the fact that your father is Fela Nikola Kukuti. They've tried in their own different ways to uphold his legacy. You know, there's something called a celebration every October around his birthday, which celebrates, you know, his life and his contributions, the culture. You know, I've been to a bunch of celebration events myself uh, over the years in Lagos. There's, of course, the shrine, which it is a tourist attraction in Lagos, which, as you may remember, when President Macron came to Nigeria and he went there to see it. He talked about having been there in the past when he was an intern at the French embassy when he was younger. Of course, you had the Fela, the show on Broadway in 2009, something like that, which got rave reviews and did great numbers and got a lot of attention. And a lot of his kids are very much involved in that. They run the activities, you know, they are custodians of his legacy, as it were. They run the shrines on behalf of the family and they pay homage to him and his name. And, you know, as I said, you're never going to get away from that. And of course, they've continued, especially Shion, in terms of the political activism, at least the commentary, if not quite, you know, the day-to-day activism. But Shion is very outspoken politically. You know, I remember during the NSARS protest almost two years ago, Shion was very vocal. He supported the movement and was very visible on television and social media and talked about the issues that the young people were proclaiming. And, you know, he, uh, of course, connected that to the things that his father talked about, that, hey, none of this is new. Like, my father sang about this 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So this is a long, multi-generational struggle. And, you know, of course, that opens up new avenues for younger people to learn about Fela. Oh, and by the way, this year will be 25 years since Fela passed away. So that tells you how much of a generational distance between Fela and his life and his music between what's happening today. So all of those conversations when Shion took part in that sort of opened the avenue for uh, people to learn about his father. So that's in, in a nutshell, uh, the uh, connectivity between Shion and Femi and their father. Now, quite often people's influence takes time. Like as you said, Fela was very influential on young people when he lived. And then 10, 15 years later, these young people become adults and some become important people, be that politically, Mm -hmm. culturally, musically. Are there people in Nigeria or broader in Africa or maybe beyond that who you think see or have been clearly influenced by Fela, perhaps see themselves in the tradition of Fela Kuti? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, easily Burner Boy, for example. Burner Boy is a Nigerian Afropop artist who's one of the biggest stars of the genre. Like, his entire persona is, like, taken from Fela in not just what he talks about, but his imagery. But, you know, his mother um, knew Fela 
He plays a lot on that connection between his mother and Fela. Like Fela, he also has that complex about, you know, the mismatch between his rhetoric and the reality of what he does as far as, you know, the politics, you know. But there very much is that connection, that heritage from Fela and Nicola Kukuti to Burner Boy. But then also guys like Wizkid, you know, also non-Afropop artists like Asha, for example, who talk about consciousness and identifying with one's Africanness, with indigeneity and the things that Fela talked about. You know, when you look beyond even Nigeria, you look at so many artists from across the continent. And frankly, the diaspora, you know, Femi Kuti Fela's son has made a lot of records with American artists like Mos Death and Common, where they've sampled Fela's records and things like that. So you can see how with the younger Nigerian generation, but also the diasporic musical culture, Fela's presence is there. Like it's ever present. Like it's very much living. And I think a lot of that is testimony to the fact that his name and his brand has been kept by not just the family, but as you mentioned, a lot of the people who listen to him, who grew up with that. So the fact that the people who grew up at that time and are now, of course, parents and grandparents and have transmitted a lot of that knowledge and that culture and that history to their kids and are using their cultural and financial capital to keep the legacy, it's evident and it's telling. So has Afrobeat been able to survive Felakuti? And if so, has it done so by mutating, by changing in terms of style, or by becoming less political or differently? My response to that would be much less about the genre itself than it would be about the uh, technologies of uh, cultural transfer. What do I mean? The fact that, for example, private ownership of media in Nigeria has meant that the government is no longer the sole arbiter of the airwaves. And with that has just seen this phenomenal transformation of the Nigerian music ecosystem. So a lot of other Nigerian styles and subgenres have grown. Now, of course, that leads me to Afrobeats in plural. Now, there's this long-standing uh, debate of Afrobeat as different to Afrobeats. I tend to agree that they're not the same, but in some sense, there's a connectivity in the sense that like Afrobeat, Afrobeats plural is diasporic in that it's a combination of a bunch of different sounds, you know, West African diasporic, especially London, because the Nigerian diaspora in London is so large and so culturally influential. It's so visible. It's omnipresent. And then the Caribbean, there again, a lot of that is based off connectivities from London, where of course there's a large Jamaican, Trinidadian, Barbadian diaspora. And of course, American, of course, you got um, American hip hop, American trap music, you know, a lot of these connectivities have been made with technology. You know, the fact that, as I said, now you can sit on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok and hear songs from all over the world and no artists that you never heard of. So in that sense, that is the sort of connection between Afrobeat and Afrobeats. They're fundamentally cultural waves than they are genres. It's not to say that there's no characteristic to uh, Afrobeat or Afrobeats, as it were, but what they have in common is the combination of the African diaspora and its musical legacy. So that, in one sense, is how Afrobeat singular has sort of 
I won't say dissolved, but evolved, as it were. You know, that Fela style is perhaps not as prominent as it was. But what also has happened, as I've mentioned, is the fact that there's been this threat of other genres of Nigerian and West African and African musical art. So now you've got artists from all over the country and the continent and the region who, as I said, continue to collaborate, but they're also sampling a lot of Fela's records. When you listen to a Wizkid song, he's borrowing harmonies, he's interpolating from Fela's song, and not just him, but a lot of other Nigerian contemporary artists, Yemi Aladi, Burna Boy, Davido, Techno, they're all borrowing, paying homage bringing some connections between their art and Fela's legacies. What's also happening is a lot of artists from the rest of Africa are sounding like Nigerians. You know, you listen to some artists from like Tanzania, you listen to artists from Kenya, you listen to artists from Zambia. They're borrowing the harmonies and sounds and pronunciations and words of Nigerian artists. A lot of this is Fela's legacy because he did that 40, 50 years ago. Right. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about Afrobeat? This is probably the hardest question you've asked. Um, I guess what I would say is that there was and remains a perception that Afrobeat was all about Fela alone. It was not. First of all, Fela had a band, you know, when he started, he had the Africa 70 band. Later on, he had the Egypt 80 band. A lot of his influences in Juju and High Life and a lot of people who he influenced who also mixed their sounds with other genres. You know, when you listen to a Juju artist or you listen to a genre called Waka, it was popular in Lagos and Southwest Nigeria in the 70s and 80s. A lot of what they were doing was, in some sense, influenced by Fela. They continued traditions that he started, but because they weren't prominent, and Fela, essentially, as you identified, became synonymous with Afrobeats. You know, a lot of high life artists, they don't get recognized for the contributions that they have made to Afrobeat singular. And so when everybody hears of Afrobeat, they think of Fela alone. And that's understandable, but there were other artists before and after, and even during his career, who uh, contributed to the growth and um, visibility and prominence of Afrobeats. So that's the one nagging misconception about Afrobeat that I like to get cleared up. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. If you want to keep up to date on Chris Ogumodede and his strong opinions on African politics and also international soccer, follow him on Twitter at, at illustrious underscore C, C-E-E. -E. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come on, support.